At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 423rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who empowers people globally to build food security while using very little land. We're talking with John Jevons about biologically intensive gardening and farming. John has been the director of Ecology Action Mini Farming Program since 1972 and is the author of How to Grow More Vegetables, a book on biointensive sustainable mini farming in use in over 150 countries in virtually all climates and soils. John advises on projects in countries such as Mexico, Kenya, Russia, and India, as well as all corners of the U.S., Ecology Action has been a nonprofit since 1971 and currently has two research demonstration sites in California. Their mission, to teach people worldwide to better feed themselves while building and preserving the soil and conserving resources through the Grow Biointensive Closed-Loop Small-Scale Agriculture System. Welcome to the show today, John. Are you ready to rock biointensive growing? Yes, Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yes, what happens, I grew up uh, before I went to college in Arizona, and I just found that I used to really enjoy gardening, and I would garden in 110 degrees sometimes. That didn't bother me. Then over time, I just kept wanting to farm, and in the early 1970s, I asked a question. What's the smallest area you can grow all your food, all your clothing, all the food for your wallet, and other farming uh, products and crops in? What's the smallest area in a way that is environmentally sound and equitable? So if everyone used that method or something similarly effective, Mm -hmm. that everyone would be able to live well. So I went to the Central Valley in California, which at the time was raising 30% of the food for the United States. Mm -hmm. And I asked that question of farmers and agronomists, and what they told me was, well, we don't know the answer to your question, but if you grow a 1,000 acres of wheat and it's a good year, you'll be able to pay your bills, which meant if it was an average year, you wouldn't be able to pay your bills. Subsequently, in a 10-year period, 100,000 farmers a year went bankrupt for 10 years. It was extraordinary. So we began in 1972 the Common Ground Mini Farm Program in the Stanford University Industrial Park on Syntex Corporation land mm-hmm. on three and three-quarter acres. Our part was only about a quarter of an acre, and the rest we turned into community gardens. First, we thought it was going to take a 
quarter of an acre to grow all your income, then revised that on the basis of our yields, and we got it down to a sixth of an acre, and now it's down much, much lower than that. At intermediate level, grow biointensive yields, you can grow a complete balanced diet, and with the diet crops themselves, you can grow all the compost materials if you choose the crops properly. We call it uh, knowing the plant personalities or the crop personalities. Right. And you can do that in 4,000 square feet, which is 180th of the area that it takes to grow the average U.S. diet currently. Uh-huh. So it's, it just gets more and more exciting and fun. We moved up to Willis, California, which is the first stoplight after San Francisco, going north on 101. And, of course, there's a lot of bypasses in there. And we moved here in 1982. I've been doing this for 47 years. I'm 76. And every year it gets to be more and more fun. And we're able to reduce the area it takes to grow your food. While the average U.S. diet takes a little over two acres to grow, we're working on getting it down to 2,000 and, and even 1,000 square feet. Wow. How do you go about doing that? And what are you growing in 2,000 square feet? First of all, we organize our cropping pattern according to a thing called 60-30-10. 60 percent of the area, so let's pretend like it's a thousand square feet because it's going to be easier to do the numbers on it right now and for people to absorb it, but it's probably going to take you 2,000. If it was a thousand square feet, you'd be growing 60 percent of the crops that are winter and summer grains. We call them compost and calorie crops. They produce a tremendous amount of compost material and a significant amount of calories. Then thir- so that would be 600 square feet or 1,200 square feet if it's a 2,000 mm-hmm. square foot unit. Then 30% of the area would be in high-calorie root crops. And on page uh, 40 of How to Grow More Vegetables, the seven crops that fit in this are listed. And they include such things as leeks, sweet potatoes, potatoes. In fact, um, my blog, johnjevons.org, has a an exciting topic on sweet potatoes that's worth looking at. And garlic is another crop, and there's uh, salsify and and several more. So 30% of the area is in these seven high-calorie root crops, and then 10% of the area would be in vegetable and income crops. Now, onions fit in vegetables if they had just a little bit higher yield Per unit of area, per unit of time, they would be a 30% crop, but they don't quite make it. And the only bean that makes it into out of 10% into a 60% crop is the fava bean. And the one that does bet is, is the banner fava, which is a winter fava, but you can grow it in into the hotter weather in, in Arizona, growing it not in the middle of the summer. Right. That's how we choose our crops. And... There's some fascinating things because in the case of garlic, there's two hardneck garlics, German porcelain, and I'm forgetting the other one. They grow an amount of biomass necessary to actually feed the soil with compost in the area that they're growing in, Mm -hmm. even though they're a 30% crop. So as you learn the plant personalities, it gets to be more and more fun. We had a woman, Olawumi, from Nigeria, Ghana, and she had two 
two-inch notebooks full of plant personality information. She made the Energizer bunny look like someone had pulled the batteries out of the bunny. <laughs> uh, she was so wonderfully driven. Wow. So, so that's the thing with the kinds of crops that we grow. And it is a, a vegan one. And the reason it's a vegan one, if if the remaining people on the planet were eating the average U.S. diet, 75% of the world's people would have to not be here. Right. And so we figure think small and have good nutrition. And so we want uh, a goal here is for everybody. That's the equitable part for everybody to be able to eat well and live well. Definitely. And to change scarcity into abundance. This planet is a place of abundance. We just have to, to do things in a way that manifests the full abundance. Right. Well, I, I have that conversation with people all the time that the only place in the world that lack lives is between our ears. Because when I look at my yard and my farm mm-hmm. and the places where I grow, the abundance is mind-blowing. Absolutely. And one thing that's interesting is might be for your listeners to go to. We have a we had a two week farmers course in 2014, and a lot of it was videoed. And a number of the topics are on there. They're each about an hour long. Well, there's so you go to collegeaction.tv, and then most of them are free, and the others are really inexpensive. And the one that people in terms of between the ears. <laughs> Yep. And in the heart, Jed Diamond's two 50-minute topics talk about if you want to be a really good farmer, you have to farm yourself and your soul first. It doesn't get airy-fairy. It's very realistic. And uh-huh. Gandhi and Tolstoy, who both knew each other and communicated a lot, they each said you can't change your externals. You can only change your internals. And if you change your internals, surprise your externals will change yeah isn't that amazing how that works i love it yeah so i want to go back and revisit something you said you talked about growing biomass yes so your the biointensive growing that you do grows food for us and it grows food for the soil can you talk about that i i sure can and and so i don't forget it in my blog, johnjevons.org, there's a topic called The Soul of Soil, and I think that'll be fun for people to read to sort of get the, the real dynamics of it. Mm-hmm. But on page 40 of the 2017, How to Grow More Vegetables, Fruits, Nuts, Berries, Grains, and Other Crops, than you ever thought possible with less water on less land than you can imagine, one of the longest titles in the world. <laughs> in the first matrix that's at the top, it tells the amount of mature biomass you need to grow and the amount of immature biomass you need to grow in order to reach basic, intermediate, and advanced level of sustainable soil fertility. Mm-hmm. So, And there's some crops that really crank, like the, the winter fava bean will put out an amount of immature biomass like you can't believe, it's while huge. at the same time produce a lot of calories unless you have faviosis. And if you have faviosis, you don't want to eat them. Uh, Only a few people of uh, Mediterranean genetic extraction have faviosis. Most people of Mediterranean genetic extraction don't have faviosis. But it's it's something that if you eat the fava bean over time, it can kill you. How to Grow has that in a 
footnote by the fava bean information in the master charts. It can grow 180 pounds at intermediate level yields of uh, immature biomass. And then for your grains, your winter grains, the goal at the intermediate level is to grow 30 pounds of dry biomass in order to maintain sustainable soil fertility. So why do we want to do that? The reason we want to do that is in order to hold the minerals and the water in the soil, you're going to need enough compost. And something that's really key for your compost crops, the 60% crops that you're going to take in the cool season, which in Arizona is sort of almost an oxymoron, but you get your compost crops in the soil early enough so they establish deep enough root systems so that they glom on any free minerals so they don't leach out when it rains. Mm, right. We learned about that. Also, one of the key things is you want to keep water in your soil. We found that if we got much higher potato yields, if we have the, the, the soil evenly moist through three feet deep, and we got a corer that's not expensive from Gemplers, and so we can just go down and, and tell if we're watering properly. And it's not that you need to water oodles. We only water 10 gallons a day per 100 square feet, which uh, would be about 40 liters uh, for those who are in, in metric countries. Mm-hmm. But what you do is you keep it there. The soil, which has been prepared 24 inches deep, which gives you four times the nutrient cycling compared with most ways of raising food in agriculture. It's 5.6 inches deep in Backyard gardening, it's about 10 inches deep. So you're getting two to four times the nutrient cycling. There's this fantastic book called Dry Farming by J.A. Widso. You want the 1920 edition, you want to get it through interlibrary loan. Don't read anything that's been computer generated later. Mm-hmm. And it has photographs in it. If you follow what they're talking about, you can get the highest yields in the world with grow biointensive by holding enough water to do that. For me, you can tell I'm excited about it because you can change what appears to be scarcity in the world to abundance and fun. The water issue is becoming more and more of an issue. So it sounds to me like you've got strategies for addressing that. Absolutely. What we use per pound of grain produced, this is you know not rehydrated when you cook it, but just a dry grain per pound of dry grain produced. We use 33% of the water compared with standard agricultural practices. And for vegetables and soft fruits, such as the soft fruits as melons and cantaloupe, we use 12% of the water. So this means you can cut your water bill for gardening to one-eighth. What a deal. And I hear that numerous places are increasing the cost of water. So if you're using less and less, it was funny. We had a drought in Marin County years ago, and they forced the gardeners to not garden or to use an infinitesimal amount of water. Some people were hooking buckets to redwood trees, which condense water out of the air and drip it into the buckets in order to grow their veggies. Well, the people who were gardening in Marin County were using one-eighth the water that conventional farming was using to raise their vegetables, but conventional farming wasn't being rationed. The power is with the people and what they can do right where they are. It's victory gardening like it used to be in the First and Second World War. It's euphoric victory gardening now. It can have fun doing it. Yeah. Well, that's why I teach what I teach, so we can get out there and have fun doing it. Yeah. 
So how did you stumble across biologically intensive food growing? I had a kind of a vision when I was seven years old and I was in uh, San Angelo, Texas. I didn't know what it was, but I just had this feeling and a great feeling of peace came through me. And so then 22 years later, when I was 29, I had heard about it and I went and I visited Alan Chadwick's four acre garden on the side of a hill at UC. University of California, Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And I knew that's what my feeling vision was all about. So, and it also answered the question, which I'd asked is, what's a small scale you can raise everything in? I took some classes from him, some from his senior apprentice. I had about three tutorials from Alan. And so I began. Ecology Action of the Mid-Peninsula was in Palo Alto, California. It started recycling there. When recycling was so effective after three years that College Action won three awards and uh, the city took it over. So three new projects were chosen by the board of directors. One was a small organic gardening store where we sold seeds by the teaspoon and tablespoon full and had just lots and lots of varieties and saved people tons of money. We also, it was an educational center. We had a library and classes, including a five-week series on grow biointensive. Then mm-hmm. the, the second thing was a bicycle workshop, and that resulted in bicycle lanes in Palo Alto. And the third was the common ground mini farming project program that was in the Stanford Industrial Park. And what we wanted to do is document how to do it. I had one article from Sunset Magazine and one book by Aaron Pfeiffer, which was a Steiner devotee and protege, and that's all I had. So we began to document it. And then when I got sick about in the third year, I, I didn't take vacations. <laughs> and didn't have much time off. I got the flu and I was so bored being sick that I wrote the first How to Grow. And uh, then I took a year to edit it. About the eighth year, Doug Mayer, a soil science student at University of California, Berkeley, wrote his thesis on our soil buildup. And we had not topsoil, no topsoil, no subsoil. It was sea horizon mollusol material Uh that takes 500 years for one inch to become soil. And we were able to build one to one and a half inches of soil in eight and a half years. And this is documented in that thesis. During the first seven years, we broke the economic mini farming code We did all three of the codes I'm going to tell you about all the years, but we Uh put extra emphasis that year. Then the second seven years, we broke the diet code. And then since then, since the next 32 years, we have been spending breaking the sustainable soil fertility code. And we have the new How to Grow More Vegetables from 2017. The ninth edition has all the information that's needed for everybody to participate in Reducing climate change, if you everyone in the world did grow biointensive, you could reduce climate change by 50% or more besides using a fraction of the resources and growing two to six times the yield per unit of area. Wow. It's important again, and we are important. It's going to be a great time to reground. And something that's amazing mm-hmm. is in Salt Lake City, this man came in and I think he volunteered his time. I don't remember his name, but he figured out how much farmable land each yard had. So you can 
type in your address and it'll tell you how many square feet you have and tell you what to grow 60, 30, 10, and it added two more categories, herbs and flowers. And if you see the result of what he did, Salt Lake City has enough land within its city limits to grow all the food for all the people in that town. Wow. That's a really interesting thing for you to say because one of my goals, I'm 57 years old, one of my goals uh-huh. between now and when I die is to create Phoenix into a food-secure, food-sustainable space where we're growing enough food to feed people here. Oh, that would be wonderful, and you can do it with less water. Right. And compared with what, if you're growing a complete diet, which it's in some subdivision plots you'd be able to for one or two people Mm -hmm. and maybe more depending on the size of the plot compared with the amount of water it takes on the average in the world to grow a complete diet you could be using 20 percent of the water well and the crazy thing here in phoenix is most everybody has a lawn yep and lawns well we won't even go there (laughs) <laughs> if you get our backyard homestead mini farm and garden log book, there's a self-fertilizing herbal lawn, <laughs> and you can you can eat you can eat the herbs. It fertilizes itself, and it only requires half the mowing. So once you start working with biological, life-giving forces, it gets to be fun. Absolutely, I want to touch on your book because your book was an early contributor to my really coming out around gardening. Um, I started, I planted my first garden in 1974. And I think that's about the time your book came out. That's the exact year that it came out. And in fact, it sold so many copies at $4 a piece that we were able to run Ecology Action for four years on it. Oh, wow. And then it was picked up by 10 Speed Press. And it's still with 10 Speed Press, but 10 Speed now is a an imprint of Penguin Random House crown books. Then we have it in lots and lots of languages, uh, not the latest edition in all the languages, but uh, many of the editions in the fifth through eighth, or many of the different translations in the fifth through eighth uh, editions. Nice. When Janice said that we had uh, scheduled the time to talk with you, I was really excited because I've known of you and your work for decades since the 70s and it, it you know it really made an imprint on me so thank you for that oh well you're, you're welcome and just a, a brief story about that is i had been chief of business services at the stanford university libraries for a number of years and i was in charge of the xeroxing there and i knew the xerox representative and when it came time to print how to grow we didn't have any money we were in debt and what we did is, uh, in the middle of the night, Xerox gave us the machines, the toner, and the paper. Wow. And friends typed the original on electric typewriter. You can tell if you got a first edition. Anyway, there's just a lot of fun people stories. Yeah, no kidding. So this is a closed-loop system. Can you tell me what that means? I'm, I'm glad to. We were calling it, you know, grow biointensive sustainable mini farming or biologically intensive sustainable mini farming. But the challenge with that is that sustainable initially was meant by the USDA as economically sustainable for 10 years for farmers. Mm-hmm. And most of the sustainability money went into GMO creation. But if you are looking at sustainability as we do from a sustainable soil fertility 
perspective, most of the systems in the world that are growing food, that are farming or gardening, are 18 to 80 times not sustainable. If you're eating the average U.S. diet grown by standard approaches, every time you eat a pound of food, 4.7 pounds of farmable soil are lost to wind and water erosion because of the farming practices being used. We're only 4.5% of the world's population, so that isn't too bad. Mm -hmm. It's not good. But for 90% of the world's population that live in developing countries, every time they eat a pound of food, 12 pounds of farmable soil are lost. And since everyone in the world eats 2,000 pounds of food a year, a ton, that means that in developing countries, 12 tons of farmable soil are lost per person per year. In China, it's 18 pounds. And in California, it's 24 pounds or 24 tons. So... With Grow Biointensive, for every pound of food you, you eat that's been properly grown by Grow Biointensive techniques, you can actually grow up to 20 pounds of farmable soil for every pound of food eaten. One of my favorite quotes is, if you want to predict the future, create it. And that quote is attributed to Hawk, who created the credit card. Did mm -hmm. he create his future? Good Lord. So you can actually be contributing to reduction of climate change in your backyard, and you can be creating a proactive future and a lot of good nutrition and get good exercise right where you are. Now, a lot of people worry about, oh, they say double digging is hard. If you get at, um, if you go on our website, growbiointensive.org, and there's a little Google search window just for our website, put in self-teaching, and you'll come up with a free downloadable 20-page how to grow more vegetables that took two and a quarter years to write to keep it simple and have almost no numbers in it, but have it accurate. And in addition, there's a free downloadable eight-part skills video on how to double dig without any work, how to build the best compost pile and so forth. So these are free. We hope people will join Ecology Action and help us be the growing edge of this kind of living farming globally and it's not just globally it's we've been teaching localization since 1972 and we like it we'd be if, if there were no challenges in the world we'd be doing it because we like it right exactly so the website where we find that those that book and resource at growbiointensive.org nice then the name of the 20 page book the enhanced farmer's manual and the, the enhanced one is only in English, but the farmer's manual itself is in six languages, including Hindi and Turkish. How it got into Turkish is a, an amazing story. We had a person from the United States, a couple that moved there, and the camels liked the guy so much that they would kiss him. And uh, you've got to be careful about kiss, being kissed by a camel because they spit. But <laughs> at any rate, he uh, sadly died a few years later, but his wife caused it to be translated kindly uh, in, into Turkish. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that just, that just goes to the impact that, you know, that your book is having all over the world. Our next two newsletters are going to focus on in the United States and around the world of uh, the kind of impact that's happening. We trained two eight month interns, a couple from Canada, James and Sharon, and they're in BC in Kimberly and what they're doing there is they have their own grow biointensive website. 
and they're bringing in someone from Africa to uh, show them their new way of fundraising with local communities supporting this kind of work so that that can be spun off and used in Africa. About 42% of Africa's on starvation track, Kenya, about 72% of the people there are on starvation track. It wow. doesn't have to be that way. Under right. drought, drought conditions, you can grow all your food. So that's growbiointensive.org. I suppose we can sign up for your newsletter there as well, right? Uh, yes, you can do that. And uh, if you're a member, you get the choice of having either hard copy or electronic copy. We, we love people to learn more. The latest things that we're doing, some of the latest ideas are there. Beautiful. And you've got some events coming up this February. Yes, on uh, February 10th at Evergreen University in Olympia, Washington, I'll be teaching a one-day workshop. The evening before, from 6.30 to 8.30, I'll be giving an evening presentation on biointensive and its perspective in terms of local and global. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of fun, and the information should be up on my website, johnjevons.org, uh, all the details and how to register. So you also have another workshop coming up in March. Yes, we have uh, two three-day workshops, one in March and one in November each year. And the March one in 2019 is going to be on the 1st through the 3rd, Friday through Sunday. The details for that are on growbiointensive.org. One of the exciting things for me about it is that we teach everything we've learned in 47 years and three days. There's a over 200-page manual that everybody gets. We cover the highlights in that. And what the workshop is, is driver's training on how to use the manual for the rest of your life. Wow. And to grow into it and into yourself and into the soil and into food. It's uh, And what's a real resource besides the workshop itself, the kind of people who come. Oh, I'm sure. Are all advocates of having a good time being self-reliant. Wow. And where do you hold those workshops at? We hold them at the Golden Rule community that we've been associated with for, gosh, almost 20 years. They've uh, helped train people for the United States under an ecology action internship there, as well as we have at two other sites. Right now, we don't have a site at Golden Rule, but they continue to be supportive. They're just incredible people. The Golden Rule community believes in doing to others as you, you would have other people do to you and they they walk their talk is that near san francisco oh it's in willett and with with the tuition what you get three lunches and one networking dinner as part of it so excellent and a 200 page manual <laughs> perfect and so you and you do this twice a year march and november yeah the generally the first friday saturday sunday of each of those months yay so if you can't make this March, you can also check it out in November. And that's at growbiointensive.org. Awesome information. Thank you for sharing all of that. Well, this is the kind of stuff that urban gardening is doing all the time. There was so much great information in John's podcast interview that we decided to split it in two. Tune in on Tuesday for the second part. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.